Good morning, friends. Great to be here. Enjoying being with you today, and I'm glad you're enjoying one another. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us this morning, it's great to have you join us for worship. We're going to continue in our worship uh, by uh, asking the ushers to come forward so we can receive our morning offering. This is our way of just reminding ourselves and declaring that God is first in our lives, even in our financial lives. So we just give with joy and thanksgiving and count it a privilege to put him first. So as we do that, I want to um, just remind us of a couple things. First of all, our, our short-term trip to, to Guatemala, to Sequil, Guatemala, is coming up here real soon in March. And I want to say, maybe you're a person that's never been on a mission trip, you've never even thought about going on a mission trip, um, but I promise you that if you do, God will... God will reach in and touch your life in a special way. He, he just seems to work um, in those kind of moments when we step out. And so if you're at all even interested in exploring that, we have a, a meeting today up in the church office right after service from 1230 to 1. Um, if you can find out, you can find out more information there. Um, if you can't make the meeting but you want more information, you can talk to Pastor Kerry, you can talk to Pastor Ruben, you can see some folks out in the lobby at a table. But we'd love to have you be a part of this amazing partnership we have with uh, some believers in the church down in Guatemala. So that's coming um, your way. And second, before we get into our message today, I want to talk again for just a minute about what I believe it looks like um, for us to be the church in the midst of this divided political nation that we live in. And last week, Pastor Matt um, offered some thoughts, and I thought what he shared was right on the money, and I want to come alongside of that and say um, a few more things, mostly because I truly believe that we have an opportunity right now as the church to represent Jesus well, maybe in some ways that we haven't in the past. And so I think this could be a real redemptive moment um, for God's people in this country. And, I, and I, as we come into this conversation, I want to acknowledge that this is sometimes a hard place for us because one of the challenges we face as a, as a church family is that we like to unite and come together and feel like we're... We're in something together. We actually like to agree. We really like to agree with each other and feel like we all think the same thing. And yet when we come to when it comes to an election or to politics, there's there's actually a chance that there's people in this room, maybe even people in your very pew, that voted the wrong way. And so we have this sort of uneasiness that maybe we're not together. And of course there are friends, there are, because there are a wide range of political views and thoughts represented in this room. But let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus ever dealt with followers who had different political perspectives? Everything that was like a problem for him back in the day? The answer is yes. This is actually from Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. But this is a list of what we call the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, Jesus inner circle, circle the core group around uh, the movement to form the church and follow Jesus. And we'll see in this group of 12, two guys in particular. The first one is a guy named Matthew. And we're told really explicitly that Matthew was a tax collector. 
Matthew's sort of political bent was that he would go out and he would collect taxes for Rome. Taxes from his own people to fuel the political machine that was Rome, to fund the Roman army and occupation. Matthew was someone who collaborated with Romans. And then in that same list, we see another guy, his name is Simon, and we're told specifically that Simon is a zealot. And the zealots kind of took the political uh, stance of hating Romans. Uh, They wanted nothing to do with Romans. They wanted the Romans gone through any means necessary, through violence, through hatreds, through force, even through assassination. So in the same core group that Jesus leads, we have someone who wants to collaborate with Romans and someone who wants to kill Romans. And yet, these two guys are both sitting at the table when Jesus says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And what they realize and what they come to realize as they spend time with Jesus is this. There is a unity between them way bigger, infinitely stronger, immensely more powerful than their worldly political perspectives. And friends, if you look at our world right now, I don't know if you see it. I hope that you do. I'm sure you do. Uh, We are extremely polarized as a nation. A lot of people over here pointing fingers at folks over there. A lot of people over here hurling inflammatory language at folks over there. And this is a world right now where people are huddling up with other people who, who think like they think and agree with them. This is a world where you slander and gloat and badmouth and ridicule and even shame your p- political enemies, that's what's happening all around us. But I believe this. I believe we as the church, as followers of Jesus, are called to something more. You know, one thing we did as a staff this week, and it was just a really beautiful moment. We talked about what does it look like to be the church in this moment um, in a politically diverse congregation. And, and so we sat around as an entire staff, and we asked this question. In regards to the election in this political season, what's your experience been? How are you feeling? What are the struggles you have, the questions, the doubts, the fears? How are you doing in the midst of this political climate, whether or not the person you voted for won or lost? And then we just shared. People shared, and they were... They were vulnerable and they were real and they shared respectfully and openly and honestly and carefully. They were careful about the words that they chose and and people listened And then we prayed. And God, as we did that, friends, um, said something to me that I hope you'll hear today. The church should be the safest place in the world to talk about and even disagree about politics. Because the thing that bonds and unites us together is so much more powerful and significant than any political differences that we face. And if we believe that, friends, if we will live that, and if we will model that, I believe our testimony to the world in this moment can be significant. Because we don't, we're not scared of politics, because it might divide us, because it can't divide us, because the thing that bonds us is stronger. And yet we, we wade into those moments with grace and humility and open palms and take a stance and a posture that says, I might not be the smartest person in the world. I might not have the only perspective. And maybe... If I will listen to and love my enemies, people who think differently than me, I could grow. You see, that's what happens when Christians have real conversations with each other and listen to one another. We grow. The Bible calls it iron sharpening iron. And so I want to ask us this morning, can we commit to being a church like that? 
Can we commit to being a body where people have a far different experience than they're having in the world right now? I hope so. I want to say, I want to affirm you, I've seen that in this place. But I want to just call us to kind of press into that even on, on, another, on another layer. And so I want to just, before we get into our message, pray for our nation and our leaders and our church and for what I believe God is and will and wants to do um, even right now amongst us. Lord, right now we, we look at our, our nation and we see um, a lot of things, but I see God, just people who desperately need you, people who are hungry for hope, people who are hungry to know that there is a unity that runs deeper than division. I pray, God, for uh, our church, that we would follow you, that we would represent you. I think, God, of, of, all the, of all the Thanksgiving moments where people are gathered around tables with family and friends, people who may have different political perspectives and ideas, God, and then that your Holy Spirit would come and that in us and through us you would help us to speak grace and truth and that we would shower your love and that we would, above being right or being heard, that we would think first about representing you and what we say and the way we act and the attitude that we have. I pray, Lord, for our nation uh, for our leaders, God, that your mind and heart and perspective would infuse the, the men and women who are leading this country, that you'd guide and direct, God, that they would surrender and yield to you. And then, God, we pray even for people that we might be tempted to think of as our political enemies, people who don't think like us or see things like us or even uh, wrestle with the issues in the same way that we do. And, God, when they're brothers and sisters in Christ, may we just hear one another and listen to one another and grow uh, together. That's my prayer, God, uh, that you would have your way and that your kingdom would come, that heaven would fall in and through um, us in this place. Thank you, Lord. Um, We trust you and we declare you again as king. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This morning we are finishing up a series, a series we've called Emmaus, uh, along the way. And in this series we've been uh, walking with these two disciples in Luke chapter 24. And they're on the road from Jerusalem to this little town called Emmaus, about seven miles away. And they take this journey right on the heels of Jesus uh, being crucified. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been using their experience, their journey, as kind of a, a roadmap, a, a launching pad to talk about what life together following Jesus should look like for us. And someone said, how's Jesus kind of forming and shaping them? How might he want to form and shape us and call us to live in light of their experience? And today we're getting the concluding um, section of this story. And in this concluding section, we're told this. Now remember, this is the very end of these two disciples having walked along the road and spent time with Jesus and encountering him in a significant way. And then we're told this in Luke 24, starting in verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Then the two told what had happened on the way. Friends, today we're talking about telling what happens along the way. Sharing our experience. Today we're talking about 
Inviting others into our experience with Jesus. Later on in verse 48, kind of down a few paragraphs from this moment, Jesus again appears to the disciples and he says this to them. He says, you are witnesses of these things. Of all that's happened, of all that I've done, you are witnesses of these things. Um, Later in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, today we're talking about what it looks like to be a real witness for Jesus. And I want to think about what it means to be a witness for a minute, but... I want to do it kind of in reverse. First, I want to talk about what a witness is not. Um, when you think about a, kind of a courtroom setting and what a witness, um, who a witness is and what a witness does, first of all, I want to just remind us that a, a witness is not a few things. First of all, a witness is not a defense attorney. Jesus is not asking you to defend God. I don't know, I don't know if you know this or not. God's pretty tough. I mean, he's pretty strong. I don't really know that God needs you to defend him. A lot of Christians take kind of this posture, I'm going to defend God. It's like I remember when my brother, I had a little, one little brother, and you know, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to him. Torture him, pin him down, pretend like I was going to, you know, all this stuff, right? You know, you've done it to your little brother if you're an older brother. But as soon as anyone else messed with him, it was like, I'm going to defend my little brother. God is not your little brother. He does not need you to defend him. You are not called to be the defense attorney. You're also not called to be a prosecuting attorney. Jesus is not asking you to go out into the world and accuse people, point out their wrongs, their sin, and pin them to the ground. That is not our call as Christ followers, to prosecute anyone else. And then finally, Jesus here doesn't say, go and be my judges in the world. You are not the judge. God is not asking you to judge anyone else's life. What he does say is this, be my witnesses. And a real witness is simply somebody who says, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what happened, this is my experience, my personal story with Jesus. And so what does it look like to be a real witness for Jesus? Three things this morning. First of all, to be a real witness, it takes a real experience. You know, we spent the last six weeks talking about how these two disciples experienced Jesus on the road, how they talked to him and how they heard from him and how they allowed him to shape and mold and transform their thinking, how they invited him into the very depths of their hearts and minds and souls. They have this profound experience of Jesus. And the reason, friends, we have been hammering away at this, the reason we've spent so much time in the last number of weeks talking about you and me creating space and time and intentionality in our lives to experience Jesus is because of this. If you don't, do not experience Jesus, you can't share Jesus. If you don't know him, you can't tell about him. You can't share him. Friends, actually, you know what? You can. You can tell about Jesus, but you can't share Jesus. You can't be a witness to Jesus unless you actually know him, unless you experience him, unless you have a real personal encounter. In fact, one of the the best images of the gospel, of the kingdom of God kind of moving forward in the world, um, one of the best images of like God's will and reign and the hope and peace and shalom and redemption that he's advancing in this world, one of the best images of that is offered by Jesus himself. He says this in Matthew 13. 
He says, the kingdom of heaven, this advancing, moving will of God, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, this is kind of a foreign concept to us, not a whole lot in this room. Maybe no one in this room uses leaven. Any leaven users in here? Um, oh, we got one in the back. There's always one. Good job. Gonna be Bible, Um But most of us don't know what leaven is. So I'll, I'll tell you what it is. In the Jewish world, they didn't have yeast. You couldn't go to the store and buy like a packet of yeast. And so they used leaven to, to make their bread rise. And leaven was simply a small piece of dough that's been left out and given time to break down and ferment. And as it does that, um, it becomes a piece of leaven. There's, there's leaven uh, as a part of that process. And so what Jewish families in Jesus' day would do is they would take their dough for the week, the dough they were using to bake bread, and they would break off a little piece and put it on the, the windowsill of their home, and they would leave it there, and it would break down, and it would ferment, and it would become a piece of leaven. And then the next week, they would weave that piece of leaven into their dough. And then before they baked that batch of bread, they would break off a piece and leave it on the windowsill. And then they would bake their bread and then they would weave it in. And so there was always a little piece of last week's dough and this week's bread, which is kind of gross and would never pass health inspection in our day. But it worked for for people in in Jesus' day. And so what Jesus is showing us here um, in this example is how the gospel gets shared what it looks like to spread the kingdom. And he's saying this, he's saying that sharing your faith isn't just preaching at people or telling them to follow certain rules or live in a certain way or getting people to think and believe exactly like you do. No, he's saying sharing your faith is literally sharing a piece of yourself, sharing a piece of the Christ in you. It's taking the real experience of Jesus that has mixed its way into your life and changed you and transformed you, and it's breaking off a piece of that and giving it away to someone else. It's passing off a part of you, the part of you that Jesus has impacted and changed and infected in Luke chapter 8, Jesus heals this guy. And after Jesus heals him, he begs Jesus to, to go with him and to just stay with him and to kind of, kind of continue on with him in ministry. And of course he does. If you had a fatal disease or uh, uh, some sort of an issue that made you an outcast and, G- and someone healed you, if Jesus healed you, you'd want to be with him. And yet Jesus will not let this man come. And here's what he says to him. He says, return home. And tell how much God has done for you. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. Not share these doctrines or this Bible track or this idea or this theology. Just tell people what God has done for you. And friends, I think Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me. And the rest of the verse we're told that the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. You see, when Jesus does something for you, when you meet him, when you truly experience him, it's hard not to share. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book that we've been kind of walking through in this series, says this, As it turns out, The best evangelists are people just like the Emmaus Road disciples who can't wait to tell others what happened to them on the road and how Jesus met them. Just sharing their experience. A real witness starts with a real experience. Next, a real witness sees real people. This one might be most significant for some of us today. 
Why do we share Jesus with people? Why do we share our faith? Well, if I can be honest, I think sometimes, maybe all too often, it's because we feel obligated. It's because we're told we're supposed to, that we have to. We feel guilty if we don't. Sometimes I think we share Jesus because we have this this deep inner fear that maybe we're not good Christians, maybe we don't love God enough. But if I could get somebody else to become a Christian, to, to meet Jesus, then that would, that would validate me, my doubts, my fears, all the places in my life where I feel inferior. Friends, that is the wrong reason to share Jesus. The real reason to share Jesus with people is because we love them. Because they're real people, created in the real image of God. And he loves them, and your heart has turned to them and turned for them because you see them through God's eyes. In Luke 24, the disciples rush back. As soon as they meet Jesus, they rush back to Jerusalem. They take the seven-mile journey back and to tell who? The 11. Their friends back in Jerusalem. The people they love and care about most, they have to tell them because they love them because they're real to them in john chapter one this is one of my favorite stories there's this guy named andrew um andrew experiences jesus he meets jesus and then we're told this this is the gospel of john verse 41 this is a great verse the first thing andrew did was to find his brother the first thing andrew did was to find his brother simon and tell him we have found the messiah that is the christ and he brought him to jesus you see he's just a brother I have to tell my brother why I love my brother. My brother is a real person to me. See, if you really experience Jesus and you really love someone who hasn't, there's going to be something deep in your soul that longs to share Jesus with them. Some of you uh, might know this, but my my in-laws, my wife's parents, are not um, followers of Jesus. And uh, this is something that we've, prayed about and talked about and um, wrestled with for a long time. They're just great people who exemplify so many wonderful qualities and love us unconditionally, and they're just just phenomenal folks. And yet there's this deep desire, um, especially for, for Amy and I, that they would know Jesus, that they would meet him. And I asked Amy if I could uh, share this this morning, and she said that I could, but she, a, a short while back, wrote them a letter, and I think it actually expresses this point perfectly. Um, and so this is real personal, kind of sensitive stuff, and so um, treat it carefully, but uh, this, is, this is what my wife wrote to her mom and dad. Hey guys, once again I've been brought to a very poignant place in my faith. I love you both so much, and I want, as I've always wanted, you to know that what Jesus did was done for you as well. He loves you more than anyone could ever love you. I know, here she goes again, but I can't help it. My life hasn't been the same since I became a Christian. A thousand times better, I believe, because I know God has a plan for me, and he wants me to be with him in heaven someday. Do I have all the answers? No. Do I still ask really tough questions about my faith? Yes. David says I ask the hardest questions he ever receives. No Christian person will ever know it all, no matter how much he or she studies, but regardless of what I know or what I don't know, I do know how knowing Jesus makes me feel, and I feel like I could soar. I feel incredibly humble. I feel undeserving. I feel happy. I feel comforted. I feel like I'm not alone. I feel complete. 
I never want to pressure either of you when it comes to my faith. You know that. But you must be prepared to hear this every once in a while. You can't expect me not to share what is most important in my life with the people I love the most. Again, I love you very much, and I hope that if you were to ever have any questions about this or anything having to do with faith that you would feel comfortable asking me, I will always love you the same, no matter where you're at in your faith. Please at least consider wrestling with the fact that Jesus died for you. I'm not saying you haven't considered this before. Just maybe it's time to do it again. From the bottom of my heart, Amy. So friends, that's, that's just a daughter experiencing Jesus in a real and transforming way and wanting to share him with the people that she loves, real people, people that are real to her, people that she sees and cares about. Do you have people in your life that you love that much? Are there people that are so real to you, so loved by you, that you have to share Jesus with them? Maybe... Maybe it's time, friends. Maybe it's time to write a letter or have a conversation or offer an invite to church this Christmas. You know, so often people during the holiday season are open to, to experiencing God in ways they are not the rest of the year. And we've got some great stuff coming your way for this Advent starting in December. I'm talking about it next week. Maybe it's just as simple as, hey, our church is doing this Advent thing. We'd love to have you come be a part of it. Our pastor's, you know, kind of average, but hopefully he won't embarrass us. And I'd love to have you come. Maybe it's just that simple, friends. I mean, is there a parent or a child or a family member or a neighbor or a coworker or a friend that you love enough to share the hope of eternity and heaven and Jesus and life with? A real witness, friends, has a real experience and then sees real people. And then finally, a real witness trusts a real God. In Acts chapter 2, there's this description of the early church, um, the very first followers of Jesus. And these folks were passionate. They were fired up. They were motivated. They were out sharing and talking about Jesus and, and, and you know, proclaiming the gospel and their faith constantly. Um, they were never at rest from doing this. But then in verse 47, in the midst of all their efforts and all their strategies and all their passion, we're told this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the one thing that was very clear in the minds of the early church was the fact that God was with them, that he was at work, that he was behind their efforts, and this gave them great boldness. They were not doing it on their own. God was doing it. Doing it through them didn't mean they could be passive. It doesn't mean they could just sit back. But they had full confidence that God was the one doing the work. One of my favorite authors tells this story about a time when he was walking with some friends, some guys from his church on a street near the ocean in Southern California. And, and he tells this great story. He writes this. As we were walking, one of the places that we went past in Newport Beach was a bar. And there was a fight that was going on in the bar. It spilled out the door like an old western or something. Several guys who were beating up this one guy. He was bleeding from his forehead. It looked pretty bad. And we all had this sense that we've got to do something. So we went over to break it up. We didn't have much experience in breaking up fights spilling out of bars. So as we went over, I don't think we were very intimidating. In fact, as we told the guys to stop, they didn't even seem to pay us much mind. But then, all of a sudden... 
they looked at us and they got this fear in their eyes and started to slink away. We were surprised, but when we looked behind us, we saw that out of the bar had come the biggest guy I think I have ever seen. He was literally, I think, about six foot seven, weighed probably 300 pounds. He looked like Hercules had married Xena the warrior princess and they had had a child. We called him Mongo. Not to his face, of course. We made that one up later. But as he stood there and flexed, all of a sudden, my attitude was transformed. I said to those guys, you better not let us catch you here again or else it'll be bad news. We were different people. I was different. Why? Because we had a great big mongo standing right next to us. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was ready to go serve somebody that needed help. Why? Because I had a great big mongo. Friends, what if as you went out into this world to be a witness for Jesus, you had this renewed, ever-increasing and amazing sense, this overwhelming knowledge that your great big God was going with you and he was at work in the hearts and lives and minds of the people you encountered. Maybe even in ways that you would never know. You know, um, when we first moved here, my wife, who is kind of becoming the hero of this sermon. Don't worry, we'll talk about all her faults next week. Um, She was at the school where my kids go, and one of the things that happens when you're a pastor or a pastor's wife is you really don't have a choice if you want to share about God because people ask you really early on in relationships, what do you do? And now you have a choice to make, right, Matt? You say like, oh, it's this business sort of in Cedar Mill, or you tell the truth. Um, And I tell the truth most of the time. No, all the time. Um, And so my wife was talking to this other mother, and and it's kind of intimidating when you're brand new in an area and you're brand new to a school. And so they were talking, and finally this question got posed, well, what brings you guys to Oregon? And and Amy decides, hey, I think I'll take the chance here. And she says, my husband's a pastor down at Cedar Mill, and, you know, if you ever want to come check it out, that'd be great. And the woman says, oh! Are you kidding? I have been praying. This is the true story. I have been praying and thinking about going to church, and I've actually been thinking about going to Cedar Mill. Right? And they've been coming to this church ever since. They started coming like the next week or something, and they've been coming ever since. Because God was at work in ways that you could never imagine or even guess from the outside. Friends, sometimes God's at work, and I would venture to say, God is always at work in ways that you can not see. And so here's the challenge this morning. Could you be a little more bold this week? A little more courageous as you seek to share, share the good news, as you, as you seek to be a witness for Christ? Is there someone in your life Not 10 people, not a whole office complex, but is there just one person in your life that maybe God's putting on your heart, writing on your mind right now, or he's saying, would you be a little more risky? Would you be a little more bold? Would you take a little more of a chance to break off a piece of that Christ in you and share it with them? Is there someone in your life right now who's a real person who you love, that needs to hear about Jesus. And maybe God is saying, I could use you, that's right, even you, if you would trust me and you would know that I'm with you. And I say that, friends, not flippantly, because I know sharing Jesus isn't easy. It can be a scary thing. It can be intimidating. It's a very personal moment. 
You can feel extremely vulnerable. You can feel so exposed. I share all those same feelings. It takes a ton of courage. But friends, when you remember that you do not go it alone, that God is at work and he's gone before you and that he's with you and that he'll even continue to work behind you, maybe that will give you just a bit more courage. And you know, we generally close the service by sort of reminding our hearts and minds and together as a community declaring that we don't rely on our own strength. We rely on the strength of the one who defeated the grave, who, who died and then rose again. And it's his strength in us that fuels us. And we do that by sharing the Lord's Supper today. And we're not going to do that this morning. Instead, we're going to uh, remember that truth through the other sacrament that the church celebrates. And that's the sacrament of baptism, this moment where... Through the water, people get to declare, the power that rose Jesus from the grave is alive in me. The one who's at work redeeming the the world has redeemed me. That I no longer resist the work that God wants to do in and through me. And I die to self and I raise to new life in Christ. This morning, friends, we have a chance to celebrate with folks from this community who are being baptized. There are 17 people who are going to be baptized today. 17 folks who are declaring that Jesus is Lord of their life and that his death and resurrection is for them. 17 people who want the world to know who are now going to be on mission with you and with me. Two of them happened in the first service. Um, this one guy named Ridge, he stood up and he said, he said these words. He said, for 40 years, by the way, if you're being baptized this morning at this service, just come on up right up here on the stage. Um, come now, just do it. Just interrupt my sermon. But this guy named Ridge, listen to this. He said, for 40 years, he resisted God in his life. For 40 years, people shared with him and prayed for him, and he resisted. And then this morning, he stood in that tank right over there, and what he said? He said, today, I resist no more. It was awesome. And and all I could think was, that is the Christian life. Today, God, I resist no more. Not, God, I'll do more for you or I'll work really hard, but, God, I'll resist no more to what you want to do in and through me for your kingdom. 